0: How we doing church? You're doing all right? All right. Hey, I, one person's doing good. So that's, we're moving there. Yeah. Thank you, Gene, whoever you are for that. Yeah. Uh-huh, there he is. Um, I'm, uh, I'm Peter Anderson, I'm the senior pastor here at FB Hanford, and we're just excited to have you here. Last week, we, uh, we wrapped up our series on family matters, and we're launching into a new series that's going to take us straight up to Christmas, and the series is obviously called uh, Epistles, which is up there. Uh, and uh, and we're going to get to that in just a second, but but I wanted to be honest with you all for a second, only for one second, though, and then I'll start lying again. Um, But uh, the majority of my life, um, I claimed Christianity as my belief system, and I claimed the Bible as the inerrant truth and the inerrant word of God, and I wasn't super familiar with it. I didn't understand it. Uh, I wasn't, and and, and honestly, the reason was it sat on my shelf, and I was waiting for it to tell me all of the things I needed to know verbally, apparently, Um, but outside of listening to messages largely like the one i'm going to share with you this morning outside of uh, reading christian inspired books and things like that uh, i largely wasn't super familiar with my bible the majority of scripture was actually relatively unknown to me so when i started into my profession as a youth pastor, I had a whole lot of catching up to do because I knew that I had a heart for God. I knew that I believed in these things and I was, I, I had read scripture, but I wasn't super familiar with it, but I had a whole lot of catching up to do. And by the time I had a lot of catching up to do, at that point, I was too afraid to ask anybody any questions for fear that they would find me out as some sort of fraud because I didn't understand my Bible. Now, chances are there are people like that in here as well who have said, you know what? I've gone to this church for a real long time Uh, and I'm not super familiar with my Bible, but regardless of that, I'm not going to ask anybody because I've gone to this church for a real long time and I should be a mature, a mature believer by now in the eyes of other people. So I want you all to know that, that while we're here, while we're doing our best to love the Lord, our God with all of our mind, if you have questions, if you're confused about anything, please come and ask. Jeff and I are at the front of the stage after every service, um, and there's a whole lot of people here who uh, who have just spent time in church, have spent time in the Word of God who would love to have that conversation uh, with you because there's no shame in that. And we'll also do our best to make sure that if there's any words or anything like that um, that are kind of insider Words, words that you would have had to be in a part of church for a really long time in order to uh, to understand what those words are. We're going to do our best to make sure we define those words for you. And the first of which uh, is the word that's sitting on the screen right now. If you haven't been in church for a really long time, or maybe you're new to faith in general, or maybe you've been in church for a long time and you're too scared to ask what the word epistle means, that's okay. We're going to break it down for you right now. Uh, because honestly, there was a uh, there was a uh, a, a survey taken within churches in the last couple of years, and the majority of people thought that the word epistle meant an apostle's wife. No joke. <laughs> and if you think about it, you're like, yeah, I could see that. It's a little bit more, little bit more feminine than the a apostle. It's an epistle, right? Um, that's obviously, that's, that's not true. Uh, an epistle isn't a person, but it's a thing. And not every book in the New Testament is indeed an epistle, But rather, every letter written is. So, anytime you see a letter written in the New Testament, we would refer to that as an epistle. And so, Paul writes the majority of the epistles in the New Testament. The word epistle uh, comes from a Greek word that means a letter. And so as we are continuing through this series, we're just going to be looking at a whole bunch of letters. And man, this series, I hope you walk away every Sunday feeling like you've had a drink from a fire hose, because as I was even preparing to share with you about the entirety of the book of Romans, without getting you guys out of here past 3 p.m., I thought this is going to be a challenge. Right, And so this is going to be kind of the pace that we're going to be setting, like I said, uh, through Christmas. So new to church or seasoned veteran, this series is going to give us some broad strokes regarding some of the, uh, the most applicable portions of Scripture. Because as you read through these epistles, and I was talking with some people earlier about this, as you read through the epistles, especially the Pauline epistles, so a Pauline epistle would be any epistle written by Paul, so as you're, as you're reading through the Pauline epistles, all of Paul's writing is very, very structured. There's an introduction, there's doctrine, and then there's application. That's it. Not so much unlike a sermon, right? Hey, everybody, I'm Peter Anderson. I'm the pastor at F.E. Hanford, right? And I say hi to you, and I usually say, how you're doing? And then some people respond inappropriately loudly. And then after that... We get into some doctrine, and then eventually we land with some application, right? There's nothing new under the sun here that we're doing, which is probably a good thing. But that's how Paul writes. And beyond that, this entire series is meant to help us realize that the church, regardless of the era in which it existed, has issues, And so a lot of Paul's letters, not specific to Romans necessarily, but a lot of Paul's letters that he is going to be talking through or that that Paul writes to all of these different places, he's writing to them to not only encourage them, but also to admonish them to say, hey, you're going in one direction, you need to be going in another. And so one of the things that 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 I just want to get clear right off the bat is that, we need to recognize that there is no such thing as a perfect church. As a matter of fact, I want you to know that so much that I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, there's no such thing as a perfect church. Do that real quick. Okay, good. Now the other person, say it back. Good. Some of you guys are already all over it. Good. Now the harder one, the harder one, we're gonna make it real. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, our church isn't perfect. Do that. There wasn't as much participation. Do it because we're not perfect. Our church isn't perfect, but regardless of the era in which you find churches, all churches have issues. All of these churches, even immediately following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, after Jesus is gone, guess what? The church got messed up. Why? Because there's messed up people in the world. We all are. And so as Paul is writing the majority of these epistles, he is going to be correcting behavior within the church. Which is why I say that this is some of the most applicable scripture that, we, that, that you will find to your personal life. And as a matter of fact, in the majority of these, the in part, Paul will tell you, now go do this. And we're going to see that even today. So as we look at all the different epistles, we need to be okay with churches being a place where broken people show up to point people to Jesus. That's the point of the church. It's a place where it's okay that hypocrites can reside and hope that the Holy Spirit changes our hearts from the inside out. That as we enter in the doors, We're messed up, and we know that we have our issues. We have our sin issues. We have all the struggles that we walked in with. And as we're here, we are prepared to be sent out into the world. And somewhere in the midst of that whole thing, we hope and we pray that the Holy Spirit shows up, convicts our hearts, and we leave with a faith that is stronger than when we came in. That's our hope. That's our desire. The best example of this type of person who could walk into a church and probably not be welcomed, specifically the early church, would be a guy by the name of Paul. And we're going to talk about Paul for a second, and then we're going to zoom out, and we're going to get right into Romans. I know some of you guys are like, this is supposed to be a Romans so all about Paul right now. Just take a deep breath. We'll get there, okay? But Paul... If you've been familiar with church, know that he started as a young man named Saul and was bent on eliminating Christianity from the face of the earth. That was his desire. That was his goal. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a dude who was incredibly well-versed in the Old Testament, okay? A man of knowledge, a man who, who you can see was, was an incredible writer in his letters, and he was an incredible man in his spirit as well. You, you can tell how educated Paul was when in the original Greek manuscripts, you, you convert word for word Peter's manuscripts, the epistles that, that the apostle Peter wrote as a fisherman versus the one that Paul wrote as a scholar. And it would be the difference between comparing somebody who probably had the equivalent of a second grade education versus somebody who had a PhD. And that's what we're looking at here with Paul. He's an incredibly accomplished man. But he wanted nothing more for the church to get eliminated. And then, thankfully, Jesus directly intervened. The risen Jesus, he appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, an encounter that completely and totally transformed him. Saul became a beloved apostle, a saint, an evangelist, a theologian, and a pastor. Paul's an important character. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, Paul wrote 13 of them. Out of all the biblical human authors, Paul has written the most books of the Bible. Paul was chosen for a very few specific tasks though. Ephesians 3 verses 8 and 9 tell us that. It's not on the screen, but I'll tell you, if you want to jot that down again, it's Ephesians 3, 8 and 9. It says, although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Now, I know it's hard to follow along with unless you're reading, but in other words, his job was to preach Christ to the Gentiles and convey God's plan for managing the church. That's why Paul is writing. We see Paul preach Christ to the Gentiles in the book of Acts specifically. We see him uh, and his plan for managing the church in his letters. And most of Paul's letters fall into two categories. There's letters to churches and there's letters to individuals. And so in, in letters to churches specifically, uh, uh, those he, they are named after the churches that he wrote to. So Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, and then there's a disputed authorship over the book of Hebrews, which some people believe Paul wrote and other people think he didn't. And the people he wrote to, you would see the books of First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Those are why they're named that way. And Paul is, 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 like I said, he's this incredible organized writer. So now we know some basics about him and his writings. We're going to jump into the book of Romans. Book of Romans, specifically, uh, the authorship is Paul. He's writing in about 57 AD. He's writing from corinth That's where most believe, people believe he wrote the book of Romans from, but it's not, it's not expressly stated, so we can't be 100% sure. And it was written to the church in Rome, uh, and specifically a church that Paul had never been to. And so Paul is at a point in his life where he longs to go to this church. He longs to be with the people of Rome. He even talks about that in his letter. But he is never able to go. We also need to recognize that he's writing to two very distinct Audiences. I said a word earlier. The word was Gentiles. So he's writing to a group of Jews, and he's writing to a group of Gentiles. Now, if you were familiar with, uh, with with Jewish culture back then, you were a Jew religiously and culturally. If you were born into a Jewish family, you would have been called Jewish. Everybody else, then, in the entire world, would be called a Gentile. Okay, so Paul is writing to these two different groups. Of people. Paul in this letter systematically lays out the entire case for christianity and that's what we're going to walk through as a matter of fact some of you some of you know about an old way to be able to present the gospel to people to present salvation to people is called the romans road right where there's specific there are specific verses in romans that as you flip from page to page and you just read those things you'll get to the idea of salvation overall this book has five sections that we're going to highlight now, some of you uh, are like, some of you Bible scholars out there are like, there's actually six, or I only count three in there, or whatever. We're going to highlight five, okay? Um, and if you want to dispute it, fine, break it down more. It doesn't matter um, what it is, but for, for our, today's purposes, we're breaking it down into, uh, into five different sections. And, and Paul is going to take us on a very specific route from his first few verses that are his normal greeting all the way to the end of his manifesto, which leads us to the church serving one another. And so we're going to start with section one. Section one is going to cover a few, uh, a few different chapters, specifically from the beginning of the book all the way to Romans 3 verse 20. This section of scripture is primarily its primary primary focus is going to be on that of sin. Okay, there's a greeting that lasts about 18 verses at the very front end of there, but the majority of this section is going to focus on the idea of sin. Paul talks about the idea of the unrighteous man because until uh, we know that we're a sinner, we can't appreciate our need for a savior. So Paul starts out very clearly. That we are sinners. We are sinful. The rest of this section makes three... I know. Uh-oh is right. Just hang on to your hat. We're going to go with aha in a second. Um, that was perfect. Whoever's kid that is, give them another muffin. Um, but... uh. <laughs> i forgot where i was we could pray and probably, <laughs> probably call it a day um but the rest of this section it makes uh, it makes three statements that together prove all people are sinners and need jesus christ so he starts in romans 1 verses 18 to 32 with this idea that the gentile world is guilty so anybody who's not a jew is going to be considered guilty which I'm sure the Jewish people in the Church of Rome are reading this. They're like, amen, all you guys over there. who are Apparently, this is the Gentile section. All you guys over here who are guilty, right? And so he lays that out for those people. And he talks about the wrath of God being poured out onto those people. Paul explains that human history begins with... Mankind knowing God, but then turning away from truth and rejecting God. And Paul says, your problem is you've distorted things. And he's like, well, what things have you distorted? Again, he's talking to the Gentiles at this point. What things have they distorted? First, you've, you've distorted your conscience. In Romans 1.19, it talks about that. And specifically, one of the hardest verses for people who have a bleeding heart for other people is found in Romans one twenty And 21 Where it says you distorted creation. You began to worship the created things instead of the creator. All around you is proof that a powerful being took nothing and made something. Where did it all begin? Anthropology would show us that groups all over the world not specifically connected to the gospel have the same distorted image. The desire to worship things that have been created rather than the creator. Sun, moon, stars, earth. The consequence of that is that we've then distorted our own person. We've distorted who we are. The Gentiles then have distorted even the idea into, and he gets into the idea of our own sexuality in Romans 1, 24 to 28. And it's after all those things that we realize that often the greatest judgment that God can afflict on us as a people group is to simply let us do what we want to do. Because our sin nature, the sin that is embodied in every single one of us, just will begin to unravel in ourselves. And then Paul goes on to tell us that in the Jewish world is guilty. In Romans chapter 2, it starts with verse 1 and goes through uh, chapter 3, verse 8. And like I said, up in this point, I'm sure the Jews are over in the corner just clapping like, yep, preach it, brother. Preach it, brother Paul, because again, Paul was a Jew. But then when we look back to Ephesians, and Ephesians definitely tells us that Paul uh, is here to be able to bring the word of God, the word of Christ to the Gentiles as well. And Paul barks at them saying, you're not any better than they are. As a matter of fact, you might be worse. You've had the law and you still don't obey what it says. And so you guys need to come to terms with the idea that you were God's chosen people. You knew you were God's chosen people. The law is presented to you as God's chosen people. And y'all still messed up. And that's what Paul is telling them there in that section. Them judging others. Then he says, what about your own life? You've been well instructed, but you've begun to trust in rituals and traditions to save you instead of the promises of God, instead of recognizing that that tomb was empty. And then Paul takes it a step further because (laughs) he doesn't just want everybody to feel terrible or just the Jews and the Gentiles, but everybody should then feel guilty because in Romans 3 verses 9 through 20, he tells us that the entire world is guilty. So then everybody could take a little bit of a sigh of relief. He was like, okay, it's just not me. It's everybody's jacked up. Okay, good. So Paul then essentially takes an x-ray of a typical person. And there is sin from head to toe. Romans 3.9 is pretty clear for everyone. And that's your next verse here. It's the key verse that I have in there. It says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any, dis- uh, do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Everybody is messed up. Everybody sins is what Paul is getting at. And our culture wouldn't even like the word sin, much less being told that we're sinners, right? Except on Sunday. That's the only time it's okay for somebody to call you a sinner. And even then, it better be the guy preaching from up here because in an interpersonal relationship, if someone calls me a sinner, I'm going to be pretty upset about that, right? We don't even like hearing that word. I think it's a whole lot more politically correct to say I'm a good person who occasionally makes mistakes. Right? I mean, that's how we would all feel about ourselves. Well, they're a good person, though. Yeah, they messed up, but they're a good person. Biblically speaking, you're wrong. But ultimately, that's what we like to say. Paul says, all have sinned. All have sinned, which brings us then into section two, where Paul's major theme in section two is the idea of salvation. So you're gonna see a common theme here, like I said, of Paul walking us through step by step the message of salvation. Section two in Romans goes from three twenty-one to five twenty-one. This section is one of the most difficult to come to terms with because a lot of us want to do things in order to be declared righteous right? As, a, as good Western Christians, as Americans specifically, we're like, you know what? Give me a list of things to do. I'll knock those out. I'll make sure I'm in heaven, right? Wouldn't that be so much easier if like, instead of you coming here every weekend and me talking about the idea that you need to continue to become holy, even though Jesus uh, died and was raised again, and, and all of your sins are forgiven, if you just walked in and we gave you a list and said, hey, do those things, you're going to heaven. Man, that would be so much easier, and I could knock those out in a couple hours and be like, done, I can do what I want, you know? But this whole section's about salvation. And the key verse tells us openly and freely in Romans three twenty three and 24, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We are justified freely by his what? Grace. It's not works. There's nothing you can do about it. You got to call upon the Lord and say, all right, I'm throwing myself at at your feet. I'm throwing yourself at the mercy of, of what you accomplished on the cross. And we get to say thank you. But righteousness by faith, not works, not the law, not rituals, not traditions. In fact, Paul says righteousness has always been by faith. And he gives the perfect example of that, of Abraham. Abraham, who was born and died way before Jesus even comes onto the scene. And so if you've ever pondered the idea of, wait, how did people in the Old Testament go to heaven? Well, Paul credits Abraham's, Abraham's salvation to faith. He had faith in God. And he was saved by his faith. Even the father of the Jews was declared righteous by his faith. Before circumcision, before the law was given, before all of these things, Abraham was saved by faith. And because of this, believers have, have, we have these priceless uh, spiritual blessings. We have peace with God. We don't have to worry about, we don't have to worry about a God who is contentious against our actions because he's taking care of it. We have peace with God. We have access to him. We have joy We have hope and love. We have his spirit living inside of us. Some of you are sitting out there thinking, if my sin has been taken care of by God's grace, now then it doesn't really matter how I live. Right? Because God took care of it. I'm a sinner. He took care of it. So it doesn't then matter all the different things that that I do in my life. Well, good thing Paul is smarter than all of us because he addresses this then in section 3 in Romans 6 through 8. And the major theme of that is the idea of sanctification. Okay, I promise you guys who are new to faith or old to faith who don't know these big theological words, this word sanctification, I'm going to break it down for you real quick. Sanctification is a theological word that means the process of becoming Holy. It's the process of becoming holy. So if you were to zoom out, right, and, and go back to uh, camp on Wednesday night when you accepted Christ as your Savior and you were all crying in the bunks and everything like that, right, like a lot of us did, me included, um, when I rededicated my life to Christ, uh, that's the point of what we call justification, okay? Here's your theological training for today. That's justification. You are justified. You are declared holy in the sight of God, Okay? And I've talked through this once before, but you're justified in the sight of God. And then when you die and you go to heaven, that's called glorification. You're glorified. That process between justification and glorification is the theological word called sanctification. And it's the process of becoming holy. And that's what Paul talks about specifically in Romans 6 through 8. So while it's tempting us to just, to just say, you know what? Jesus conquering death on the cross will cover up all of my sin anyway. I can continue on and living in any way that I please. The reality is that the saving faith is one that transforms your life. So if you have what I would consider a saving faith, not just saying yes to God at some point and never bearing any fruit, if you have a saving faith specifically, holiness. You are going to continue to work out holiness in your life until glorification. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans, like I said, Romans 6 through 8. And as we enter into this process of becoming holy, we fall deeply in love with Jesus and what he accomplished on our behalf, which brings us into our key verse in this section, which is Romans eight twenty eight. And it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, trusting Jesus, uh, it means a whole new way of living. You died to sin. We have a new allegiance to Christ. We can deliberately and consciously choose to free ourselves from sin. That sanctification is choosing every single day to become holy over and over and over again. That I'm going to choose to become more holy because God is our new master, and we are dead to sin and alive in Christ, which is what Romans six eleven tells us. And in Romans 7, Paul says, okay, Paul then, that raises some questions then about the law. Because remember, we're talking about the Jews who have the law right? Who are living according to Jewish law. And we also have the Gentiles. So Romans 7 is like, hold up. There's some questions then about the law. Paul, are you for the law or are you against the law? Because what you'll see a lot of times in Romans, as you read it, is Paul asks himself questions. He's like, well, what do you think that means? Well, may it never be, right? Whatever it may be. But Paul is not answering this question. Paul says, well, so the question is, are you for it and against it? And Paul says, well, yes and no. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Thanks, Paul, for the clarity. I really appreciate it, man. Well, yes and no. If you think it's a legal system of good works to gain acceptance by God, like the Galatian church, then the answer to that is no. I don't believe in the law. But if you understand its purpose was to reveal sin, like Romans 7-7 tells us, that its purpose is to lead us to a Savior, to show us God's holiness, to give us a moral standard of living, well then in that case, the answer is yes. Thanks, Paul, for the clarity. I really appreciate that, man. But to tell the truth, this, this new allegiance to God through Jesus has created a struggle even in my own life. And it should have created a struggle in all of your lives too, as you're beginning to understand like the difference between grace or faith, like through grace and not works, like salvation in that in that arena. Because when I choose to live myself, live for myself, ultimately what I really do are the things that I don't want to do. Because it's about me. But then I know I've made this decision for Jesus. I know I'm, I'm supposed to hold myself to a higher standard. I know I'm supposed to be becoming sanctified, becoming more holy. And then when I live my own life for me, I start doing the things that I don't want to do. And Paul talks about that very thing. Because ultimately, we all want to live this this pure, perfect, sinless life, but that's not going to happen here on planet Earth. It just doesn't happen. That's glorification. That's later on. We get to do that later. But in the midst of this whole thing, the midst of this life, we have to become more and more sanctified. God has promised, promised us grace, not perfection. And here we're going to struggle to live this new life, but there is more good news, which is what Romans 8 talks about. That it's, It is possible to live a righteous, godly life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 8, 1-5, he talks about that. And in Christ, we have, we have help in our struggles, in surrendering to our self-centeredness. And Paul encourages us. He says there is purpose for everything that happens in our lives. There's purpose for everything. So think about the thing that is consuming the majority of your thoughts right now. In this period of life, there is something that maybe feels overwhelming to you, or maybe you're just like, Man, this is this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Maybe you're a, a new parent and like that is overwhelming you, both good and bad, right? I've been there. Or maybe you're a new grandparent or even a great-grandparent. You're like, man, I'm so excited to see, see my baby. And it's not your baby, but you get to sugar him up and send him home like all good grandparents do, right? Amen. Amen. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's something really difficult that you got going on in your life. Maybe it's divorce or substance abuse or depression or death or, or, or you fill in the blank, whatever it is. But God tells us in his word that all things... God works for the good of those who love him. All things. Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from his love, which then leads us into section four. Section four, uh, the, the theme of section four is sovereignty. And this is Romans 9 through Romans 11. Okay, Romans 9 through 11. If you've ever picked up your Bible and flipped to one of those three chapters, you need to know that this can be one of the most slippery sections in the entire Bible, it's hard to grasp, grasp some of these things because of a specific audience that Paul is talking about. Before we get to there, the major theme, like I said, is sovereignty. And keeping true to my word, I'm going to explain these words to you, okay? So sovereignty means supreme power or authority. That's sovereignty. So in this section, Paul is writing about God's supreme power and authority over what? Everything. Everything is what he's talking about. Meaning believers are secure with God. But remember, this is written to Jews as well. So what about the Jewish nation? The Jewish nation that that growing up in Sunday school, you read about every single week, or you heard about every single week, right? What about that Jewish nation that's going on? The people of God, all the promises that God made to him, the Abrahamic covenant. All these different things that God made to them. As a whole, the nation has not accepted Jesus as Messiah. So remember, just as we have people today who are Jewish, both culturally and religiously so, that are Jewish. Back then, it was the same thing. It wasn't like the entire Jewish nation. All of a sudden, once Jesus came, died, and was resurrected, was like, that's it. We're all Christians now. Let's go mess up the church, right? That's not what they did. There was a remnant of believers, a remnant of believers who said, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. But then there was largely a whole group of other people who were still Jewish, who weren't going to follow Jesus. So how does, how does God's acceptance then of, of those new believers fit into his plan? How does God's acceptance of then Gentiles into the mix, but because before then Jews and Gentiles were separate, there was no intermingling between those two groups of people. And now all of a sudden the apostle Paul is telling us, yep, doors are wide open. Come on in, everybody. God's grace is sufficient for everybody. Romans 9 tells us that God is not obligated to anyone, but he sovereignly chose Israel because of his grace and because of his love. And you can see that back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. They were chosen for a purpose, and that was to reveal God to a pagan world. That was the responsibility of the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, was to reveal God to a pagan world. Because they were supposed to be apart. They were supposed to be separated from the world. They were called to a higher standard. Sound familiar, Church? We're called to a higher standard. We should live differently. They were chosen for a purpose, and that purpose was to reveal God to a pagan world. But the question is, is why then did they reject Christ? Romans 10.2, my brothers, the Jews, they have a zeal for God, but they stumbled over the Messiah, which is what it says in Romans nine. 33 that jesus for a lot of them was a stumbling block because they were expecting one thing and they got another they were expecting a king riding in on a chariot with a flaming sword looking a whole lot more like jesus does in the book of revelation than he did in the beginning of the book of luke when he comes as a baby born in a barn so for them it was a stumbling block to them They were so interested too in keeping the law that good works blinded them to see God's goodness in Christ. They didn't hear, they didn't seek, but Romans 10, 13, it tells us everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're a Gentile, and chances are 100% of us in here are Gentiles. And so thank God for Paul and thank God for his plan, for God's plan, not Paul's. Because without it, None of us are finding glorification. None of us are getting there. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The question then is, okay, well, what about the future? Romans eleven talks about Gentiles should be assured then that there's always been a remnant that has truly loved God. Even though that the nation has rejected the Messiah, this rejection is temporary. The nation of the Jews, right? The Israel nation. Romans eleven twenty five 25 tells us that the entire nation of Israel will be saved because of the patriarchs. And you're like, man, there's a whole lot of things you're talking about right now that I don't understand. That's okay, because not a lot of people do. Because then it talks about when. Well, when is that nation going to be saved? When are the Jews going to be saved? When is the nation of Israel going to be saved? And guess what Paul says? Nothing. He's silent. <laughs> Thanks, Paul, for the clarity. Appreciate that, man. So the first 11 chapters of Romans can be traced like a perfect argument regarding what a theoretical faith in salvation should look like, right? We have salvation, we have, or we have sin, we have salvation, we have sanctification, we have sovereignty. And so then, Paul is going to spend the last four chapters, which is going to be our last section in Romans 12, all the way through, and we should have a slide for that. Yeah, Romans 12 through 14, where Paul's major theme then is going to be service. So Paul says, okay, this is what it takes to become a Christian. This is what it takes. This is what it looks like. Okay, now that you understand all of that, this is what you should do about it. Remember how I talked about the practical application side of things that Paul was going to get to? This is that. Vers- or chapters 12 all the way through 14. And Paul in his last section is teaching everyone he is writing to how to apply all this stuff that he just talked about to their lives personally. Which is why he starts the entire section by framing it with Romans 12, 1 and 2. He starts out by saying, therefore. So, Bible lesson, anytime you see the word therefore, you should go back and see what it is. Therefore. Therefore. So, Paul wrote Romans 1 all the way through Romans 11. And he's saying, Okay, now, therefore, so I said all those things, because I said all of those things, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. He's saying, man, look at everything that God has done for you. It doesn't matter who you are. You were messed up. Jesus came. He conquered death. He has allowed you to be in heaven. Now we're in the process of becoming holy. And as we're in this process of becoming holy called sanctification, you need to now... Start doing this. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. For those of you who thought worship was the 30 minutes that we just spent singing on a Sunday morning, we have a distorted view of worship. Our true act of worship is offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's worship. That's the process of becoming sanctified. That's the process of becoming holy every single day where we choose to say, you know what? Not me, but Jesus. Not me, but Jesus. Everything we do should reflect Christ in our lives. We should serve those around us better than we serve ourselves. We should be reflections of God and his son guided by the Holy Spirit. Okay. (sighs) Fire hose, right? So that's the book of Romans. Okay. So now that I've given you all of this information, this head knowledge, how are we going to incorporate it into our lives? Because I'm not here just to tell you about this stuff. Okay. That's boring to me. Okay. Okay. Do I need to know it? Yeah. Do you need to know it? Yeah, we do. But ultimately, it's not enough to just know it. We need to put it into practice, into our lives, right? So what does this all mean? Because our Christian lives are in need of realignment. Because many of us have said yes to Jesus at some point in our lives and gotten off track and need to recognize that there's nothing that we can personally do to get it righted, to get it corrected. And beyond that, There's nothing that we can do that is going to separate us from Christ's love, like Romans tells us. us, Others of us in here are yet to say yes to him in the first place. And we have to agree that it's okay to be in progress. It is okay to be in progress. That as long as we are on this side of eternity, we will never arrive We are constantly becoming holy. We will never be perfectly holy this side of eternity. We have to be okay being in progress, which means we also have to be okay with other people being in progress. And if you're holding others to a standard to which you don't hold yourself, that's when we get the title hypocrite. We have to be okay being in progress. The big idea here, and this is your last slide, is that salvation is offered to everyone through faith in Christ alone. Through faith in Christ alone. It doesn't matter what you do, what you did, or what you are going to do. Christ took care of it on the cross. He conquered it all. And the reality is, is that we need to come to terms with the fact that we can't do anything to gain more favor to God. We can't. It's impossible. But we also have to be okay with recognizing that salvation is offered to who? Everyone. Not just Jews, not just Gentiles, not just church people, not just people outside of the church or whatever. There is a tension that is constantly being held in the Bible between grace and truth. And we have to be okay with everybody on that spectrum being allowed to come to faith in Christ. Everyone. And to some of you, this seems rudimentary. This seems basic. Like, okay, you just took me back to Sunday school in first grade. But to all of us, we need to keep this on the forefront of our hearts. We need to keep this on the forefront of our minds. We need to keep this, very importantly for a lot of us in here, in the forefront of our lips. That salvation is offered to everyone through faith in Christ alone. And we all have someone, and we've talked about those someones before. We all have those people that we already have established relationships in our life. Those people that that we have dubbed our oikos. Oikos is a Greek word meaning household for those of you who haven't been around. And what it means is those people who, who God has both supernaturally and strategically placed them in your life for this reason alone and your oikos will look different one day than it will the next than it will the next because one day you're going to get a haircut and your barber all of a sudden becomes the top end of your oikos and then the next day you got your kids soccer practice and the people that you're sitting with in folding chairs uncomfortably for an hour and a half become the people who are in your oikos and the next day you got small group And the next day you go, fill in the blank. But there are people and relationships that you have already invested in who don't yet know Jesus. Or maybe at one point they say yes to him and have fallen away. Regardless, the people are there and they need to hear you tell them that everyone can come to salvation through faith in Christ alone. They need to hear that. And imagine what it, what it would look like if, if simply we all just agreed to say, you know what, I have issues with the Old Testament because I have a hard time being, being, uh, serving a God who looks spiteful and killing whole nations at a time. Okay? I disagree with you, but okay. Okay. That's fine. Or I disagree with revelation. I don't think think revelation is things to come. I think it was happening in the last century or or in the first century AD. I'm like, okay, I disagree with you, but okay. What if we all could just agree on what Romans said? You said, you know, regardless of your thoughts of the rest of the Bible. And like I said, my thoughts, I agree with 100% of what that word of God says. But what if we just said Romans, yep, I agree to that. And not only we said we agreed to it, but we simply enacted what it said. Not just the knowledge of the first 11 chapters, but the application of the last three. Hanford would look like a different place. Your world, your specific worlds, your relational worlds would look like a different place. Your kids' teachers would get the opportunity to hear about Jesus because they can't talk to you about it, but you can talk to them about it. Man, Hanford could look so much different. And not because of anything that we do, because the power of Holy Spirit through us when we said yes to Jesus in the first place. Because of that, We need to proclaim his name to those people that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed into our lives. And today I'm going to consider everybody in here my oikos. I'm going to break the 15 rule by about (laughs) 20-fold. But what I want to do to end is I just want, want heads bowed and eyes closed. And we're going to pray and we'll get you guys out of here. But I would be remiss, Father... If I went and taught through the entire book of Romans, it didn't offer the opportunity for people to come to know you. And so God, I would pray if there are people in here who have not yet said yes to you, God, I just wanna give them an offering to do so. To say, yep, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I, I freely admit that Romans 3.23 tells us that we're all messed up. We're all sinners in need of a savior and that i would i would then believe that christ went to the cross on my behalf conquered death for me so then i could be with him in eternity so i could be glorified one day but see the sanctification part of the whole thing that i would choose to follow jesus every single day of my life with heads still bowed and eyes still closed if you if you prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand? God, I'm, I'm thankful for new people that we can welcome into the fellowship. And God, I pray that that even those people who are in here, who have who have said yes to you at one point in their life, but ultimately we've strayed away and we've struggled, and 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 we don't choose to follow you every single day, Father. I I pray right now that those people would just say the same thing that I admit: I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I be, I, I believe that you sent your Son to die on the cross. I know that, God. But God, today, and, and from this day forward, I'm going to do my best to follow you to continue to be sanctified, and. And if there are people in here with heads still bowed and eyes still closed who said yes to that, can you just raise your hand? Father, I'm thankful for commitments to you. But God ultimately, those commitments, while they're good in here, Father, we know they need to be enacted out there. God, I pray that you would make F.B. Hanford and the people who call this place home a dangerous group of people for your name. Put your word on our lips, Father. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Hey, a couple of things. Uh, Me and Pastor Jeff will be up here immediately following services. Uh, If you wanna come chat about a decision you made, we'll be up here as well. Like I just said, F.B. Family's going on right over there. So uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.